to contemplate the wonder of God being born in that, that stable, that manger, so many years ago. So we pick up this morning on Mark chapter 8, and we're going to read together verses 1 to 10 this morning and look at the story, the recounting of Jesus feeding the 4,000. So Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, and it says this, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and says to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him saying, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he says to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke it and gave them to his disciples and set them before the crowd. And they set them before the people. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And he took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. It's been two weeks since I last spoke at the front of this church and I don't know about yourselves, but it's been striking how 2020 has started. We have um, seen so many people, especially in the first days of 2020, almost convinced that World War III was about to break out. We've seen rhetoric and arguments and missiles and assassinations and all sorts of other events which have set the larger framework for how 2020 has begun. As we watch these things unfolding, I would imagine that we can be somewhat concerned about them and we ought to pray about them. But it also made me question some of the smaller things that take place in our cultures. One of the things that really strikes me about this age, and well, this is the only reference point I have, um, is is our era, so, um, is that one of the things we seem to be incredibly good at as, as a culture is creating outsiders. And it can happen at a remarkable rate. Whether we be male or female or black or white or Scottish or English or European, young or old, left or right politically, so often our culture is able to generate outsiders really quickly. With the rise of social media and things like Facebook and Twitter, on Twitter, for instance, everybody is offended about everything. 
And if you write you're offended, you will have offended other people. And then others will be offended that they're offended. And on and on it goes. The story is how, how the news covers things. The front pages we see in tabloids. A good example would be of how quick moving this could be. Just how quickly did Harry and Meghan go from the nation's darlings to almost the nation's enemies, if you read the front pages of the press, regardless of what we think about the decisions that they have made. And this is the culture that we live in. These are the messages that exist around us. But within this culture, we are called to live and be like Jesus Christ. These verses might not seem like the most exciting verses that we will encounter in Scripture. But within these verses, I think you see the kingdom of God and its ways manifested in a profound way that you don't often see elsewhere. This call to be like Jesus is why these verses, I think, really, really matter. They remind us that Jesus is not like those messages that may strike our ears and and our hearts at times, if we're honest too. They is not at times like how we respond to. On the surface, we can look at these verses and we will see mercy. How Jesus engages with a crowd in need. We can see power. I don't know about yourselves, but if I take one bit of bread, it's always going to remain one bit of bread. I can cut it up into smaller pieces, but ultimately it's still one bit of bread. Not so with Jesus. We see him again creating out of this small thing something magnificent that can feed a vast group of power. We can see disciples who still, even though Jesus has fed 5,000, look at 4,000 and still scratch their head and think, how are we going to solve this problem? But these verses which seem simple on the surface, another remarkable miracle, but actually maybe a miracle that we think, well, when you think that he's, he's risen the dead and he's healed lepers and he's straightened arms and he's restored the sight to the blind and the, the hearing to the deaf, this doesn't seem all that marvelous in comparison. But when we root what's going on in these verses into the culture and context that is set within, we find actually that there's some profoundly significant and important things going on in these verses. So I want us just to, we're way back, here we go. I want us to have a little bit of a look at some of what that is. The first thing I want us to note, because it's made explicit in the verses themselves, is Jesus' compassion on the crowd. Jesus' motive is made crystal clear when he decides that he's going to embark on these events. So often things can get mired in theological debate and That can create confusion, but actually the offer here makes it crystal clear right at the start of these verses precisely why Jesus is acting in the way that he's about to. Jesus sees the needs of the people. He sees the practical hunger of the people. And he is moved to meet that need. He has compassion on them. When Jesus sees vulnerability, he is compassionate. And I think there's something really significant about that because our life experiences might not always 
equate vulnerability with compassion. For instance, have we ever heard the phrase, we need to fake it to make it? Or the phrase, we've got to have a good, stiff upper lip? I don't quite know how you do that. Well, there are treatments nowadays that give people stiff upper lips, of course, but I don't think that's quite the point of the proverb. But why do we develop those ways of thinking? I think it's at times because we, we have experiences where when we're feeling vulnerable, we don't experience compassion. Sometimes we find actually we get kicked when we're down. We can develop this idea that vulnerability is weakness. And in fact, we're surrounded with a theory of how we exist, which teaches us precisely that. Survival of the fittest is what evolution is built, the premise that evolution is built upon. The survival of the fittest, the weak, will fade away. So there's this idea at times that weakness and vulnerability don't merit compassion, but deserve to be dismissed. The Bible, though, doesn't speak about any of that. It doesn't speak about a survival of the fittest. It speaks about, as ironically Sheena spoke about this morning, the Imagio Dei, that every single person is created in the image of God and has worth and value and is loved by God in ways that we can't comprehend because of that. With God, we have one that we can turn to and we can call out to and know that he doesn't see our weakness with content. But actually, with God, we're given a stunning promise. In 2 Corinthians 12, 19, when Paul's speaking about his weakness and he's praying to God about it, this is chapter 12, verse 9, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response is, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of God may rest upon me. God doesn't see weakness and vulnerability as something to look down on. He sees it as something that he invests his power into and brings transformation to. And this is what we see Jesus do. He's moved with compassion for the needs of this people and decides that he will use the power that he has to meet what is essentially a very basic, but at this point, essential need that they have. So I want us to note here, and I'm I'm making this explicit now, that God is compassionate. Jesus here isn't diverging from the nature of the triune God. He's expressing the nature of the triune God. He is the exact imprint, Scripture tells us, of God. God is compassionate, and I wonder if perhaps sometimes we need to remember that. We can be hard on ourselves. We can be hard on each other. God doesn't look at us and see a list of failures or yell at us with frustration, would you just try harder? He cares for us. He makes us his children. So perhaps maybe some of us come here this morning and we're feeling that burden of failure, feeling that burden of inadequacy. To quote Frozen, let it go. Or, in fact, that was more John Lowe's statement at the football. Um, (laughs) Let that go because that doesn't reflect the truth of who God is and the, the grace 
and compassion that he is pouring out on our lives. We don't need to carry those burdens. We don't need to beat ourselves constantly and remind ourselves of our failures. We don't need to look at others and see their failures to try and make ourselves feel a bit more better and a bit more holy. We can let that stuff go and we can find rest and joy in the grace and work of God and the amazing gift that he's given us in Jesus Christ. And all of that happens and all of that is possible because of the compassion of God. God is compassionate and he's compassionate to you this morning. He's compassionate to me this morning. Seeking to engage with us and to liberate us and to give us that joy and blessing that he intends to through Jesus Christ. So don't make it this thing about our failures or our, bur- our burdens because we can fix our minds on those and sit in that place. God doesn't intend we're there. His compassion is to transform us and to give us a hope and a joy that come through trusting and resting in that finished work of Jesus Christ. Because not only is God compassionate, we have to recognize that we too are called to be compassionate, to show compassion to those around us. And this is really significant when we look later into what's some of the nuances going on in these verses. We're called to live like Christ, to show the ways of the kingdom and not the weapons of the world. And you know what, if we're honest, this is actually a hard call because at times we don't want to show compassion. At times there are people that maybe we do want to give a quick kick, especially if we see them down. At times we listen to what our culture says about how that person's an outsider or this person's an outsider. We pick up that narrative, we pick up those weapons And we join that that perspective that these are outsiders. But what you see in these verses is actually there are no outsiders. Because where this miracle takes place is a Gentile area. That means a non-Jewish area where Jesus is no doubt in the presence of many people who are Gentile, who are not Jewish. No doubt there are many who were as well, especially as the Pharisees seem to be lingering in the coming verses that we will look at later on. But you see Jesus drawing this group of people together to have fellowship and dine together. His work, his power, his ways, his kingdom's ethic is to draw this group of separate people who wouldn't normally ever dine together because Jews didn't eat with non-Jews. But make them one, even for this holy moment. There are no outsiders when you take seriously the ways of Jesus Christ. And you know what? We might not be all powerful like Jesus Christ. We might not be able to do miracles like he could. Although the possibility is there when we pray. But like Jesus, we can take what God has given us, our gifts, our skill, our time, to show and to live that way in which there are no outsiders. And everyone can find a home. And if we live in that way, in the spirit of the kingdom, this world, which so often seeks to use weapons of war to bring peace, can increasingly see that there is a different way to be. There is a different hope 
And that hope is Jesus Christ. For as we live like he does, as we show compassion like he does, he shines through us. So you see the compassion of Jesus in this event in which people ultimately find themselves dining with the king. And as I says, this is really significant in Jewish culture when you recognize what's going on with this meal. Because a meal wasn't just a a thing you did. A meal signified fellowship. A, A meal signified something significant. A meal was the nurturing of a relationship. And that's why Jewish people were careful who they ate with. That's why they wouldn't dine with non-Jewish people. That's why they absolutely wouldn't dine with prostitutes and tax collectors, which again, you would see Jesus doing. Here, in in this unfolding event, is is one in which you find Jewish people and non-Jewish people all coming together to dine with the king, to find fellowship with Jesus, even if it is just for this holy moment. There's a massive theme that's underlying this, that's flowing through this, of this invitation of fellowship. Jesus, whilst he's meeting the practical needs, he isn't merely seeking to feed people, he's seeking to draw them in, that they would encounter him. He becomes, in a way, the servant here as he serves the people doing this amazing miracle. In a sense, even today, still, food and fellowship go hand in hand in churches. We have fellowship meals. We invite people around for fellowship. That concept was massively significant in Jewish culture. So as Jesus is doing this, he's doing something really significant as he draws these people together. Ultimately, he's seeking to draw them to himself. But what you see as Jesus does that in these verses is that Jesus isn't one who is looking here to create a exclusive club where you've got outsiders and you've got insiders. He's here showing exactly what he's already said. He is the great physician, the doctor who comes for the sick. He is the hope of the hopeless. He is the one that's come to liberate those who find themselves (coughs) burdened and shackled. He is the saviour of all. A God who reaches out in compassion and mercy. I want to read, and I apologise, this, this is a long quote, um, but I couldn't think of any way to actually bring it down. So you're going to have to listen if you want to understand to, and follow along with, with what I'm saying. Now, I, I want to read a quote. Now, as Jesus is, is doing this um, and, and seeking to draw these people to himself, he's seeking to establish that, that, that relationship with these people because that's what you do when you dine with people. In an a older book from actually a Scottish chap called Henry Scougill, in a, in a small uh, book he wrote called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, he reflects on how religion can often be perceived. Religion is one of these words that today is kind of pushed against because the word has a lot of negative connotations. But I wonder if when we see what he sees true religion as, is we might find that actually we find ourselves in agreement with him. Because he says this, I cannot speak of religion. But I must lament that among so many pretenders to it, so few understand what it means. Some placing it in the understanding and orthodox notions and opinions. And all the account that they can give of their religion is that they are of this or that persuasion. 
and they have joined themselves to one of those many sects wherein Christendom is most unhappily divided. For others, it is outward man and a course of external duties, a model of performances if they live peaceably with their neighbours, keep a temperate diet, observe the returns of worship, frequent in the church or their closet, and sometimes extending their hands to the relief of the poor, they think they've sufficiently acquitted themselves. Others, again, put all religion and the affections in rapturous hearts and ecstatic devotion. And all they aim at is to pray with passion and to think of heaven with pleasure and be affected with those kind of melting expressions wherewith they court their saviour. So they persuade themselves that they are mighty in their love with him and from thence assume a great confidence in their salvation where they esteem the chief of their Christian graces. Thus are these things which have any resemblance of piety and are best means of obtaining it or particular exercises of it, frequently mistaken for the whole of religion. Nay, sometimes wickedness and vice pretend to that name. Others throw. They know that by experience, true religion is a union of soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the Apostle's phrase, Christ formed within us. I want to read that last bit again. Others, they know the experience, sorry, the true religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature. There's something really significant about that because when you cut through all the dross and all the other things that are connected with what faith is, ultimately, it is a God coming to reconcile and bring back his people to himself. To make a people who weren't once a people his people. And you see Christ doing that in these verses as he seeks to dine and create this experience here and draw people back to him. They find that they have this amazing, unexpected welcome from him. And how vital it is that we remember that too, that God shows us that welcome and mercy. That we come and we sit and we stand and we sing and we join together, not on our own perfections, but in the compassion and welcome of God. We stand in victory, complete by God's grace and compassion. We walk in fellowship with God because Jesus welcomed us and had compassion because he forgave us and he is transforming us. The great joy, I think, comes not from all that other stuff, which, as he says, is perhaps a means of obtaining our experiences or exercises of our faith. But the core thing is that union with God. And that's what God invites all of us to. And that this event that takes place is radical. As I says, it's something that takes place in a Gentile area where sometimes Jewish people wouldn't even go. And sometimes if they did, they would stop when they were leaving and they would shake the dust off their feet as a statement of the fact that they weren't bringing that, undefi- that defilement along with them. 
So you had people who were insiders, you had people who were outsiders, but Jesus goes right into that area and dines with them, invites them and draws people together to share in this meal together. By doing this, he is exemplifying some of what he's already taught in chapter 7 where he challenges the hearts of the Pharisees, where he says to them, that, that yes, your, your lips honor me, but your hearts are far from me. You're doing all these little things which make it appear that you're holy people, but yet your heart is cold to God. He's deconstructing this idea that it's all about defilement and it's all about food and all that, and, and challenging that specifically with what defiles a person. That's actually not what goes into the mouth, but what rests within the person's heart. Here we see Jesus not just teach this, but actually embody it in his ministry as he serves the people of this region. But there's other significant things which we may not pick up on at first glance. The fact that the number seven keeps coming up. The seven loaves is obviously a key thing. In fact, the fish gets just a very brief tag on in verse seven, and they had a few small fish as well. But the seven is highlighted in several areas, the seven loaves that they begin with, the seven baskets that come back. Seven in scripture is, carries with it the connotation of wholeness, of completeness. That as they share in this meal, that wholeness and completeness is an element of it as well. And all of that is possible because here is one who stands before them in mercy, in compassion and in power. Wholeness, restoration, that shalom that scripture can speak about so often. But I want to close with a question. Outsiders, who are ours? As I said at the beginning, our culture creates outsiders. And it's so easy to adopt the ideology, especially when we find ourselves in agreement with some of a group's perspective. There are so many different groups now about whether we are black or white or or left or right or male or female, young and old. There are all these different groups that we can belong to and identify with. But so often there is this generation of outsiders that that group stands opposed to. Now, to stand opposed to an ideology isn't wrong. But to allow to draw into that hostility and the distinction that sees that person as less valuable is most definitely dangerous. In these verses, we see the compassion and power of God at work to practically demonstrate the end of such thinking and ways of being. To demonstrate practically and very realistically Jesus' teaching and practice. So who might our outsiders be? Who might God be calling us to show compassion and welcome to as we go into our coming week? Ultimately in our world the only way for these walls that exist to come down is to live like Jesus did. To drop the weapons of our culture and at times actually be ready and willing to be seen as fools for God. 
As we go out this week, we go out as lights. We go out as salt. We go out as ambassadors for the king of compassion. How much of that trait flows through us? I think a huge part of that is how much of that are we experiencing from Jesus. The Jesus who is here with us this morning, we know that because he promised it is a Jesus who showers compassion on us and kindness, as it says in Ephesians. How much of that wonder are we allowing ourselves to experience? Because that will enable and empower us as we seek to show that to those around us. Don't be hard on yourself. Try not to be hard on others. Find in Christ compassion and hope. Allow yourself to rest there, to be there. And then take it with you into whatever this week holds. Look around you. See who those outsiders might be. See if you might be bold enough to welcome them and show them compassion. Pray and look for this Christ who works in such marvellous ways to work for you and I. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the compassion that you have shown us. That your kindness has been poured out on each of us richly. You have done this, Lord, not because we are those who earn it or will prove ourselves perfect. You've done it because you are a God of compassion. You are a God of mercy. You are a God of love. You never abandoned your holiness. Knowing your mercy, compassion and love, you made us holy. Not through our work or endeavour, as it says in Titus, but through Jesus's. So we thank you for that. Lord, forgive us when we make ourselves the centre of the story. Forgive us, Lord, when that hardens our hearts to others and places upon ourselves burdens which we cannot bear. Liberate us from such things, we pray. May your compassion break through any thinking in our hearts that exists like that. And instead, Lord, may we be able to find the rest, the victory, the hope, the certainty that comes through that trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Saviour. Bless us, we pray. Go with us into this coming week. Help us, Lord, as we seek to engage with those that we view either ourselves and our own hearts as outsiders or that our culture or the group that we find ourselves within views as outsiders. Help us to remember this remarkable meal where Jesus brought those who were divided and perhaps even saw one another as enemies together, to dine together, to fellowship together, to fellowship with him 
because his kingdom is one that transcends all these things and draws people above hostility and division into unity and draws people from sin and that feeling of defeat to victory and forgiveness and reconciliation with the living God. Bless each of us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name.